0: We continue today looking at the book of Genesis, chapter 4. I had some time for study and planning this last week, and I decided I would fulfill the original goal to go through Genesis 11, but we will reach that goal a lot faster than you might imagine because there are passages now that include long genealogies and other things that will get us through this material in a quicker way than we did the first three foundational chapters. But generally speaking, Genesis 1 to 11 is viewed as a unit of more or less the foundation. And then at chapter 12, you go to the life and career of Abraham. I will stop before that and take that up perhaps at another day in the future. hope to go to the New Testament approximately in March, early March. We look at Genesis 4 here. I'm going to pick up in verse 5, actually, but the text is verses 8 to 16. We're concerned about Cain, his life, his attitude, his actions that make him a significant person for us to consider, not in a positive light, but a very negative light. I will pick up actually in the middle of a sentence, verse 5, and remind you last time what we were considering as the two brothers brought sacrifices, and we read, but on Cain and his offering... God did not look with favor. So Cain was angry, and his face was downcast. And then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door, and it desires to have you, but you must master it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, he will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain, so no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And this is God's holy word. Without any dispute, the last century or more that we have seen in world history, beginning somewhere close to 1900 or shortly after, has been the most violent and dangerous time of any comparable century in all of human history. Recently, I read, and it it staggered me when I read it, but when I reasoned it out, I thought it sounds right, that one person out of five, 20% of every person born since 1900 has lost their lives either to violence or famine. That's staggering. And on a Sunday, by the way, when we mark the anniversary of the infamous Roe versus Wade bringing of abortion into our culture in such a wide way, when you consider the lives of the unborn alongside that, it surely is an even larger number. We just push aside things and don't think of them if they happened before our lifetime. Someone said recently World War I had to be the most staggering event, really, more so than World War II in the way it changed society forever. And yet we don't think of that because we weren't alive during World War I. At the Battle of Verdun in 1916, that, the longest battle of World War I, I, I can't take in the numbers at that one battle, there were 700,000 casualties. That's a larger number than all the casualties of the American Civil War. In one battle, life really became cheap in the 20th century. And we see its fruit all the time now, not just in warfare. We see children dying at the hands of careless Explosive parents. We read of terrorists blowing up anybody who happens to walk near them. They're trying to send some kind of a message with their suicide bombs, and no one can ever read what the message means, except here's an angry person, a person to be feared. We are tense people, we are combative people, we are on edge in many aspects of our society. Politics are conducted, even in this free land, in the midst of much conflict and dispute. And people fear on every hand that if they get in the wrong side of somebody in a local uh, disagreement, that this litigious society is going to have the other person in court against us in short order. Life really has gotten an edge to it and a danger about it that it did not have more than a century ago. Well, Genesis is the book of beginnings. We've called it that a number of times. And I remind you again that chapter 4 shows the beginning of the human family. And maybe you would expect the Bible to be an idealistic book. And so it would present an idyllic picture. Mom, dad, two brothers, and the happy family dog. But that's not the picture. The Bible's stark realism depicts instead that the first child ever born in this world was a murderer, and the one he killed was his own brother. And so in a few sentences of Genesis 4, the subject of the family and the subject of homicide are introduced together. Because of his sin, Adam and his wife Eve lost their privilege of tending God's garden and having that precious fellowship face-to-face with God, now it spins out, you see. Now the effects are becoming wider as Cain denies accountability for his own brother and takes his life. And Genesis 4 seems to tell us that, yes, sin begins in the breakdown of our relationship with God. But once that relationship begins to break, every other relationship cracks and breaks along with it. And society itself is full of the effects. Competition, pride, brutal selfishness, treating others with a rude disdain, not trusting anyone. These things become a habitual way of life. And the little tiny book of Jude in the New Testament, verse 11, it's one chapter long, Jude 11 speaks about the way of Cain, the way of all these things. The way of a life dominated by violence and antagonism and selfishness. But despite the negative nature of this human life that we're going to look at for a few moments today, I would stress to you, and hope you'll see it before we're done, that there's a portrait of the mercy and the grace of God unconditionally offered in this passage to a flawed ungrateful human being, despite his antagonism, despite his unbelief, God's grace and God's mercy is a constant in the passage before us. Let me point you first of all to examine from this text the anatomy of a murder. It's very popular today to watch various shows on TV that are just called CSI, Crime Scene Investigation. And the detectives, the scientists come and use modern technology to try to look around the body bag that's laying there on the sidewalk and say, what happened here? Why did it happen? How did it happen? Who was responsible? What clues can we follow? Well, there's not that much of a mystery around the body in Genesis 4. We know who did it. We don't know exactly how he did it, but with his own hands, Cain murdered his brother. It was not an impulse act. It was not something that he got up one morning all happy and in a good mood and then suddenly just went insane. You know, he couldn't plead the insanity defense. It was a cold and calculated outworking of the inner man. The, the man that Cain was spiritually broke out in action against his brother. Now, I'm not going to go back and retrace the incident behind this. At the beginning of chapter 4, last week we looked at these two sacrifices that the brothers brought. One evidently was beautiful, it was edible, it was very nice, but it was contrary to something the Lord had already revealed should be brought. And if you're bothered by the silence of that revelation made known to you, It's quite clear that God had said something in what I read today, verse 7. If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? The implication is very clear. Cain knew what was right. He knew what he should have done. But he, for some reason, refused to do it. And he said, I will come to God on my terms. I will bring God my sacrifice. He should be satisfied with what I bring. God wasn't satisfied. And so this terrible outbreak of tragedy in a family began with a worship controversy. People think worship doesn't matter very much. You know, just, oh, do your thing and worship. God likes any attention you pay to Him. Well, the Scripture says God wants to be worshipped the way His Word shows us to worship Him. And if we go wrong in our worship, we're going to be set on a wrong course in the rest of our lives as well. Now, plainly, where we began in about verse 7 today. You see the fact that Cain had the chance to repent and to set his sacrifice right. Even though the sacrifice was condemned, that wasn't a life-ending event. The Lord appealed to him somehow by the Spirit and said, Cain, do it over. You have a chance. Come and worship me the right way, and and I'll be pleased with you. But if you don't, know this, that sin is is like a beast, like a wild animal, a tiger perhaps, crouching at the door of your dwelling, and it will leap on you and tear you to shreds if you are determined to continue doing things in your own way instead of my way. Notice the promise God said to him, but you should master it. God doesn't tell people to do things that are impossible. It desires to have you, but you must master it, the end of verse 7. that meant he could master it if he chose to. He could make this decision. He could have come to God and repented and said, Lord, I've been wrong. I am sorry. I humble myself. I admit my need of you. I want to walk in your way. And the Lord would have been pleased with Cain. But instead, we read that his anger burned deep, and it was anger at God. He wouldn't be mastered by God, so he was mastered by his sin. And he didn't have an iota of humility or repentance. He just gave free rein to his own thinking, and indeed that beast that he was warned about did pounce first on him, leading him to be the one who pounced like a beast on his brother Abel. You see, the blazing resentment towards God couldn't attack God. So he had to attack the nearest target who represented God, his brother who had gained God's approval. And thus, with a very brief crime scene investigation, we have in a few words the crime itself in verse 8. It's told very simply. Cain, with some plan in mind, said, Brother, come on out in the field. I need to show you something. And we know he didn't have a handgun. We know he didn't have any weapon that could kill his brother at a distance. In that time, he would have had to do it with his own hands, whether it was a rock crushing Abel's head, a club whacking him down, a knife perhaps. What it was isn't told, but Cain did it. He attacked his brother and killed him, and it appears, as far as we are told, that his conscience was troubled by it, not one single moment. I've done away with the object of God's approval. Maybe I've even done away with God, he might have thought for a moment. Well, secondly, we consider God's inquest for a murderer. We don't know how God spoke to Cain. We don't know that. By the way, anytime the Bible says the Lord, God said this or spoke this, Much of the time, it probably was not an audible voice. It was probably a strong knowledge in the conscience, in the heart of the Holy Spirit impressing something. But we're not told how that happened. But we can believe that God knows how to question somebody. God knows how to give His message to somebody. And as the Lord asks a question of Cain here, what have you done or Where is your brother is really the question. Where is your brother Abel? You should think for a moment back to chapter 3, verse 9 at another question. What was the first thing that happened when Adam sinned? The Lord said, Adam, where are you? It was a different question, but it had the same object. The all-knowing God who knew the answer to both questions before he asked them came seeking the sinner and in so many words saying, sinful man, you have some accounting to do. Tell me about yourself. Tell me what has happened. Why are you in the situation you're in now? God, you see, was drawing the sinner to give an account and hopefully to break under the knowledge of his guilt and shame and make a confession. An opportunity to admit wrong was given. God was wooing the sinful individual. He wants us to recognize that we can't hide the things we do wrong. We think we can go behind a tree and God won't see that we're there, or, or Abel's body's out there in the field, and I've kicked some dirt over it. God will never know. The Lord questions us. The Lord uses our conscience to break us, hopefully, into a confession, and not that we would not remain in that downward spiral of anger and self-conceit. The goal for Cain would have been that he might have done exactly what David did in the 51st Psalm, you remember, when he was guilty of both adultery and a design that had Uriah the Hittite killed in battle. David, when confronted by Nathan, confessed his sin, seized him, and he said, my God, against you and you only have I sinned. Would that Cain might have had that moment. God would have desired him to have that moment. But how does he reply, and how does he show himself? Just about in the coldest, most brazen response to God that can ever be imagined. Am I my brother's keeper? Knowing that he had killed him. Am I supposed to know where my brother is all the time? When I hear that and hear the coldness of it, I think of what Romans 1, diagnoses diagnosis that sin does to the heart of any individual. Paul wrote in Romans 1, "...since men did not see fit to acknowledge God, he gave them over to a debased mind. And they began to be filled with all manner of unrighteousness, covetousness, evil, malice, envy, strife, and murder." God gives the human mind this leash to run on, and Cain ran out to the full extent of his leash all the way to murder and didn't for a minute think about turning back to God in humility or repentance. Cain's or Abel's body was possibly there in a ditch covered with dirt and leaves or something, but the blood guilt of Cain was not hidden, and God Uses in the scripture speaks in this graphic image that the blood of Abel was crying out from the ground. One Hebrew expert in the Old Testament says that it is to be likened to the scream of a woman being attacked to be raped. The blood cries out. What does it cry? Justice! Do justice for me. I have been wronged. Now, here is the first big indicator in the Scripture that God regards the taking of human life as something very unique. If we go back again and remember that it was God who gave us His life and made us unique from the animals, breathed in us by His Holy Spirit, put His image of rationality and spirituality in us that animals do not have, then that means, all that means that the life of a man or a woman or a child is very special. In the sight of God. This is the beginning of that. It will be developed much more as we go along in Scripture. And by the way, you can see, I won't take time to trace these things now, but as the law of God unfolds in Exodus and Leviticus, or even as soon as Genesis 9 6, if you want to look over there to see something that happens rather soon, the Lord says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. And then the law of Moses unfolds it, the idea that there should be a capital punishment for a capital crime. When a human life is willfully taken, that life may need to be sacrificed under specified circumstances. Later on, the whole concept of a just war comes in the Bible, a long and and detailed involvement we could get into. And all the way over to Romans 13, where Paul would say that the The civil leader has the power of the sword, the power to take your life if need be. But these things would tell us that God regards human life as very sacred. It's not to be carelessly taken on a whim. It is not your job to decide who shall live and who shall die. God wants an accounting when human life is taken. And so... You know, we would reason, well, all right, if if this God is later going to establish clearly in, in legal pronouncements the basis of capital punishment or just war or those kinds of things, then surely he should have taken Cain's life, right? Abel's blood cried out and said, justice, let justice be done. Why didn't God give justice on the spot? Why didn't he kill Cain? That's almost the key question of this whole text, you see. Why did this scoundrel go on living? I can only answer you that God, who certainly is just and will always bring justice in the end, is also merciful. One commentator says in his one hand he holds justice and in his other hand he holds mercy. And in the case of Cain, perhaps in the case of this first murder, God desired this man to continue living to exhibit to all of history the misery and the futile nature of reaping exactly what you sow. God did bring a curse on Cain. We see that here in verse 12. It really was the same curse that Adam had, but in Adam's case, he was told it's going to be difficult for you to farm the soil, difficult to make a living. In Cain's case, the curse is intensified. It will basically be impossible for you to be a farmer. You will try to raise crops. You won't be able to do it. What's going to happen to that kind of a person? Well, you're going to have to have a nomadic life. You're going to have to go out and hunt and forage and look far and wide for what you need to eat. And that's going to prevent you from being a settled person. Having one home, you're going to have to be in exile from settled society. I think it's as though God was saying here, look, Cain, you don't want me. You don't want my blessings. So go out into the wide world and lie in the bed that you've made for yourself. You want to be independent of me? You have what you ask for. 100%. Be a nomad. Be a restless wanderer forever. That was the curse. And as Cain just Go out brooding and saying, well, I guess I deserve that. No, sir. (laughs) There's nothing about this man you can admire. Because even now, he protests. He whines. How can I manage this? It isn't fair. People will kill me. Think of it. The man who acted like a wolf now is afraid of all the other human wolves he's likely to meet out there who hear about him and want to do away with him. Let me tell you, even here, considering the hardship of this curse, Cain could have fallen on his knees and said, Oh God, I see my folly. I bow before you. But he didn't. Because what the Bible calls the way of Cain is the way of complete self-absorption. How often have we lived like that? How often have we come along in life, maybe committed some really bad decision, but we weren't willing to face up to the fact that it was our bad decision, and and some really negative circumstances crowd in on us, and we go, oh, man, life isn't fair. Well, I think the Scripture is showing us that until we will submit ourselves to humbly live under the providence of God and the good government of God, and live by faith, trusting in Him and His revelation, then it's almost going to be like we are in combat with the world. And the world is more like a prison to us. It's almost as if we are fighting against the law of gravity, trying to live entirely self-determined lives. The world is going to be our jail. You see, it's when you submit to God, when you, in effect, are a slave to God, that you're really free. But without that, you simply end up like Cain, stewing in your own juice. Now, I draw this passage together in the third place by speaking about God's grace to a murderer. Cain is a despicable guy. I don't have a good word to say about him. If you can find a redeeming quality in this man, I wish you'd tell me what it is. As we watch him and we listen to him, we we want to say, God, you should have knocked this guy dead. You should have shown yourself the just God. He didn't deserve anything. Why didn't you kill him? God had another purpose. And Genesis 4.15 says something mysterious when it says, God put a mark upon Cain that warned other people to leave him alone. What was that? You know, it's interesting that out of 15 or 18 Bible commentaries on Genesis that sit on my desk, nobody spends much time discussing that mark. Why? Because we don't know what it was. Nobody has a clue. Some speculate maybe it was some kind of a tattoo. Another says, oh, maybe it was some physical disfigurement that made him repulsive to look at, and people would just stay away from him. We don't have an idea. I have no idea what the mark was. But whatever this stigma was, you see what purpose it served. It was God's badge of safe conduct for this man. It was given to protect him. It was given as an act of mercy to an unrepentant person. Now we say this is strange. Cain cursed God. And in effect, he, he was separated from God consciously. Notice he, he had some wistfulness in his voice, I think, when in verse 14 he says, you're driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. He did recognize that this was going to mean spiritual alienation. And yet he wasn't sorry. And we say, why, God? Why did you do this? And I would say we can only explain it this way, that Cain was allowed to live As an abiding example, a billboard along the side of the road for other people to see and know, here is a man who has forsaken God, and here's what becomes of a man who forsakes God. And so to tell the world, don't follow this man. The way of Cain is the way of misery and the way of loneliness. He became fatherless. He was dominated by a constant anxiety. He had no God. He had no brother. And this land of Nod isn't even exactly a country. It's simply the barren wilderness of the world in which he was made to wander without security or without roots. Cain shows people for all time how empty is a secular life spent in exile from the presence of God. Back in 1863, a short story was written that has retained popularity. I know I read it as a required assignment in junior high school. Maybe they still read it today. The story was by an American writer named Edward Everett Hale, who became famous because of this story published in the Atlantic Monthly during the Civil War. The story was called A Man Without a Country. It supposedly was based, I'm not sure anybody's ever completely traced this out, but it was a fictional story, but supposedly based on an army officer named Philip Nolan. Now, Philip Nolan lived early in the 19th century and was a man who, as an army officer, became involved in Aaron Burr's plot against the American government. If you know your history, you know that plot fell apart and Burr became... In exile, the former Vice President of the United States had to live in exile in England. And others who were with him were tried and jailed, and Philip Nolan was brought to trial for treason. Supposedly, at his treason trial, the story says Philip Nolan angrily cursed his country. When the judge talked to him about the law of the United States of America, I quote his reply: he said, Damn the United States! I wish never again to hear that name or that country. And in the story, the judge gave Nolan his wish. He sentenced him to life imprisonment and said, You will be imprisoned upon, up, on board Navy ships, and you may have to be shifted from one ship to the next because you will always be at sea you will never be allowed to set foot on American soil again, and the instruction will be given to the crew and captain of every ship on which you are held not to discuss with you the affairs of the United States of America or give you any news or any information about your native land. And in the story, Philip Nolan lived out that imprisonment for 25 years at sea. When he died an old man, sailors went to his little berth where he had lived very privately and read his books and kept to himself, and they were going to clean out the place of his personal possessions, and actually, they were quite stunned to find that that berth was decorated with a large American flag, with articles and pieces of literature that he had somehow secretly obtained pegged to the walls, telling stories about the history of his land and her presidents being elected and different things that showed pride in the United States of America. In the story, Philip Nolan had, in fact, nursed a deep homesickness. The man without a country longed for what he had cursed and what he had lost and willfully abandoned. Now, if you scan Genesis 4 here in the part I didn't read, a little further on, verses 17 to 22, you see a kind of epilogue because we learn about the descendants of Cain, at least briefly. We learn that they built cities. They bred livestock. They more or less are the first people to ever use music or at least to be spoken about as inventing music. They forged tools and weapons out of bronze. In short, the line of this godless man were people of accomplishment, people of advanced culture and society. By God's common grace, he doesn't say every unbeliever can never have any talent or has to be a witless moron. He allowed them to be intelligent people. But we might ask, as we read about this, what were the vast cities and the development of the fine arts and the high technology that these people had without the redeeming grace of God alive in their midst? You know, secular man builds cities that are amazing to look upon, but all by themselves they are not spiritual homes. And we well know that in many of the great cities of our own country and the world, there are people living in isolation and anxiety, although surrounded by crowds on the sidewalk every day, they are immersed in a search for the God who their ancestors once abandoned. In conclusion, I tell you, Genesis 4 shows the grace of God. It shows a merciful God hovering over the life of a man for whom we have no respect, and we see here how God in his justice might have blotted Cain out, yet in mercy he decided to be long-suffering to teach us a lesson. His justice isn't delayed forever. God will be just. But Scripture shows God's preference to be merciful and long-suffering. Psalm 86 says, You, O Lord, are a compassionate, gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. This is the same God who says elsewhere, In Scripture, O man, why will you die? Why are you choosing the way of death? Cain had every possible opportunity to turn from his folly and come home to the Lord. We are made to understand that he went the way he did because he chose it, despite every opportunity of God's mercy. And finally, in the New Testament, you need to know that in Hebrews 12, 24, Poor, forgotten Abel is spoken about again. There in Hebrews, the author says that the innocent blood of Abel was not shed in vain. It may have cried out and cried for justice, but that author took up the theme and said that Jesus Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, quote, whose sprinkled blood speaks a better word than does the blood of Abel. The blood of Christ doesn't say, When will justice come? The blood of Christ says justice has come. Sin is reconciled, and salvation is offered to those who will believe in the one whom God has sent. And so, as God asked Cain one time, where's your brother? You're accountable. He now asks people who walk in Cain's way of angry independence, where are you? Why are you running away from me? Why are you determined to go it alone in this world when you can end your rebellion by bowing before me? We either live in the way of Cain and live as a lonely exile, or we discover to our everlasting delight that the way of the cross of Jesus Christ really is the way that leads home. Our Father, we pray today for those homeless exiles who insist on running from you. If there is such a one among us, someone who is sure that their way, their thoughts, their determinations, their goals are better than yours, we pray that you would break that person, that you would put that one on their knees before you to come to see that you in Christ have done that which pays the price of that willful sin and is ready to bring us home. We pray, O God, for those whom we know among our relations and friends who are in the way of Cain. We beseech you, God, to meet them, break them, bend them until they would turn to you with great joy. We ask this.